We'll be looking at Exodus chapter 34, the first nine verses. As you turn there, allow me to get you oriented. Our summer series this summer has been uh, dealing with the question, how do you feel? And as we were reminded early on, that's a skill or a technique question. How do you feel? What are the skills or the techniques necessary to feel well in a world that feels so poorly? The fact is that the gospel provides us the energy and the skill and the courage and the techniques necessary for feeling well in a world that feels so poorly. One of the things that we have said, the rubric that we have been using, is that as our emotions and our feelings are rooted in the gospel faith and harnessed to the gospel hope, they will manifest in the gospel love. The love of Jesus Christ, in fact, will become increasingly, unmistakably, a part of our life as his followers. And so... In August, we're looking at the character of this love that emerges when our emotions are rooted in the gospel faith and harnessed to the gospel hope. And today, we want to look at Exodus 34 as we get into this notion that the love that characterizes a people whose emotions are rooted in the faith and harnessed to the hope is a patient love, is patient with self, is patient with one another, is patient even with our enemies. So read with me Exodus chapter 34, beginning with verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And this, these verses will be the focus of our time today. Proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us 
for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Brothers and sisters, this is the reading of God's word to us, his people, here in Flintstone, Georgia. So let's go to him in prayer. And so, Father, we come to this time in this hour, to this your word, that as we open, we find is written in the language that we use day by day by day, the common language, a language that we understand because of your great love. You have stooped to speak in such a way, to lisp to us in such a way that we can understand it. And so we pray that by your spirit, not only would we hear and process these words before us, but our hearts would be strangely warmed to taste them, to savor them, to rejoice in them. For we pray it as your children in Jesus. Amen. When do you find that you most need, that is, when do you find that you, that in your, the depths of your being, you sense the need to know the glory and the wonder of God's love? In my experience, is when I come face to face, repeatedly, with the painful realities of the, of the gap between who I am, or who I imagine myself to be, and who I want to be. And there's this further gap that, as I, di- as I examine that gap, I discover, fur- discover a further gap... And that is between who I want to be and who I'm called to be. Those are three very different things. Who we are, who we want to be, and who we're called to be. Occasionally, that's when I most sense my need to know the glory. But I also need to know the glory and the wonder of God's loving patience when I encounter those gaps in others. When I encounter that gap between who others are or who I imagine them to be and who they want to be or who I want them to be. Or further, between who I discover them to be and who they discover themselves to be And who they are called to be. And who scripture reveals to us they are called to be. It is in these moments encountered every day in every relationship in the exercise of every responsibility that we discover that there is a gap. That there is a lag that we are missing or have forgotten Key pieces of information. Somehow we discover in those moments that we've become uprooted from the faith or detached from the hope or a combination of both. In those moments we discover that we have lost sight of the glory of God's love. 
of his loving patience, we have forgotten it for ourselves and for others and those who are around us, or more deadly and more sinister still, we've become all too accustomed to it. Since in my circumstances, I regularly bump into, usually quite painfully, into the limits of my wisdom and of my ability to walk by faith and obedience, I need to know and I need to see and I need to experience the glory of God's steadfast love for a wretched man such as me. Which is exactly what's happening here. Exodus 34 opens with this account of the Lord calling Moses to come up onto the mountain again. Moses had just been praying in a moment of discouragement where he, was, where he had encountered the gap that we've just been describing in himself and the gap that he has discovered in the people of Israel. And he is crying out, Lord, I need to know you. I need to know your glory. Because I can't do this. And so the Lord calls him up. And the Lord, verse 5, descends in the cloud and stands with him there. And proclaims the name of the Lord. I always found it kind of interesting because Moses prays, show me your glory. And the Lord responds by proclaiming his glory. And he starts out, the Lord, the Lord. For those of you who are interested in this sort of thing, there's an ambiguity there in the syntax. And the question is, why the double address there? Some say that uh, the Lord, the first Lord, is the subject of the previous sentence. The second Lord is the subject of the following sentence. But most commentators think that it is actually rather an emphatic attention getter. It is the Lord here. It is the Lord who is speaking. It is none other than the Lord. The Lord. Some of you will notice that it's not simply a question of kingship. Some of you will notice in your translations that the Lord is written in caps. And so it is the proclamation of his covenantal name, his covenant making, his covenant keeping name, Yahweh. Sometimes translated in older older versions of the Bible as Jehovah. The Lord, the Lord. And then he proceeds to describe himself. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Most commentators agree that, the, that it's thousands of generations forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to only the third and fourth generation. Notice the imbalance there. That first word, merciful, is the word rahum. It means it is not the, the word said that we're accustomed to, that we find throughout Scripture, especially in the uh, Psalms. This is the word rahum. It means compassionate. It means a, a predisposition toward, a posture toward. A predisposition toward forgiveness, what we have said called here in our context as preemptive forgiveness. The glory of this God is that He's a God that is predisposed to forgiveness. He is gracious. He is big-hearted and generous. That is, the, that is the language there. He is slow to snort. It's an idiom. Slow to anger is slow to snort. And I love that idiom. Because I am not slow to snort. My guess is you may not be slow to snort either. Especially when someone cuts you off in traffic. <laughs> Your little brother bothers you. <laughs> I am not slow to snort. But Yahweh is slow to snort. It's really, upon reflection, it's really an amazing image. Because when we think about the situations in which we snort, it comes sort of as a reflex, kind of like the doctor hitting your knee. It's just what happens. But not with our God. He is slow to react like that. He is slow to snort. He is abounding in steadfast love. The, what is it read in English as steadfast love? That's the word that we're accustomed to. It's a single word in Hebrew is hesed. It refers to the distinctive kind of love of the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. For those of you who are keeping notes and you want to write what is that Hebrew word with English characters, C-H-E-S-E-D. Chesed. You'll find it throughout scriptures. This is the language. Steadfast love, steadfast mercy, steadfast loving kindness, steadfast faithfulness. All of those are, are attempts to get at this distinctive character of God called Chesed. He is steadfast. And he is steadfast in his forgiving of iniquity and transgression and sin. Notice the three words for this thing that we find ourselves so allergic to naming. Forgiving my iniquity, my transgression, and my sin for thousands of generations. How steadfast and abounding is that? 
the disciples choked on the equation of seven times 70. But here, we have the holy God describing His glory as the delight to steadfastly forgive for thousands and thousands of generations. And I don't know about you, but as someone who is stubbornly rebellious for thousands and thousands of days, that's good news to me. He continues, keeping steadfast love and faithfulness, verse 6, faithfulness, steadfast love and faithfulness. That language there of faithfulness is variously translated throughout the Old Testament, but the word is emet. Some of you might remember, what is it, the Lego story? What is that, that movie, the Lego story? And emet, right? That's his name. Truth. Truthfulness, troth, fidelity, faithfulness. That's the language there, steadfast love and faithfulness. It's in fact, some scholars believe the exact pairing, steadfast love and faithfulness, that John is picking up on when he describes the incarnation and that we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. Many scholars believe that John is, under the influence of the Septuagint, is actually referring to this pairing, steadfast love and faithfulness. What John is saying is, what Moses heard proclaimed, we have beheld face to face in the flesh in the person of Jesus. John says it later in one of his epistles that we handled him. We held his hand. We ate, ate with him. But this God, notice this merciful, gracious, slow to snort, steadfast love, faithfulness. And he is just. We really like those first ones, but we don't like this last one. Because it feels so mean and unkind. And yet, it is such an important part of our hope. Brothers and sisters, there is no hope in a God who simply winks at our sin and dismisses it. The hope is in a just God who justly deals with our sin because he is a just God who is merciful, gracious, slow to snort, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the beauty of our God's glory. That's the glory of our God's love. There is no hallmark sentimentality here. This is hardcore, life-saving, world-changing stuff here. This is power. Right there on Mount Sinai. The experience we find out later of the people as Moses is watching the glory of the Lord proclaimed and passed before him is absolute terror down at the foot of the mountain. Because they see this dark cloud and they see lightning and they hear thunder. 
And it's terrifying because, brothers and sisters, the glory of God's love is powerful. It calls all things into being. And it redeems all things. This is one of those passages, despite the fact that it's not hallmark sentimentality, this is one of those passages that somehow rises up to get hallmark sentimentality status. We find it in Christian cards and things like that. And so it's very easy for us to to latch on to Exodus 34 and to totally dismiss its context. And when we dismiss its context... We dismiss the glory. Because the context, the context in which this is what the Lord desires to proclaim is stunning. We tend to think that the Lord blesses us with this sort of self-revelation when we have done well. But the fact is, the Lord blesses us with this sort of revelation, the reminder of his glory and the glory of his love, when we know ourselves to have failed miserably. The context here is the golden calf. Moses had gone up the mountain to receive the first set of tablets, and the Lord said, get down off the mountain because your people have rebelled against me. Moses left Moses with his head scratching because he thought, I thought these were your people and now you're calling them my people. And he comes down and he finds them dancing around the the golden calf and singing the great hymn. Aaron taught them, Israel, behold the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt as they danced around the golden calf. And at that moment, in, a, in, a, in prophetic anger, Moses breaks the tablets. Why? Because even before having received the covenant, they broke the covenant. How deeply rebellious, how habitually rebellious are the people of God. And it's in that context... As Moses encounters his, the, the gap between who he is and who he is called to be and his lack of resources, as he encounters and comes face to face with that gap in the Israelite people, he cries out, I cannot do this. And that is the context in which the Lord says, that's right, you can't. And aren't you lucky because this is who I am. You see, the occasion of God's self-revelation, the real glory of God's self-revelation can only be experienced when we take it off the wall and place it in its proper context. Namely, among a stubbornly sinful people, right in the heart of my stubbornly sinful life. That's when I behold the real glory The 
That's when I can see it. That's when I can hear it. That's when I can taste it. That's when I can savor it. That's when I can wonder at it. Or as Moses shows us, worship it. You see, the purpose of God's self-revelation for such a people is that we may know the comfort and we may know the hope and we may know the strength and we may know the courage and we may know the wisdom and we may have the skill necessary to live well as a people who show themselves to be stubbornly rebellious day after day after day. I have said tongue-in-cheek sometimes that the gospel is, in fact, conditional. It's conditioned upon me knowing that I am the kind of person that Christ came to save. Well, I know that well. <laughs> and that is a good thing. As I encounter the painful realities of who I am in the midst of my relationships and responsibilities, I need to know this is the kind of God who has called me. I need to understand that the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever is perfectly calibrated to meet my stubborn, rebellious character. Not only so but it has actually anticipated it. That is the wonder of who he is. This is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 1 when he says, from before the foundations of the world, he determined to set his love upon you. He anticipated everything that I encounter in myself and in others from before the foundation of the world. And this is why Paul says in Romans chapter five, 5, that this is love. That while we were yet sinners, he came and died for our sins. Brothers and sisters, that's good news for me. I don't need to be afraid of my sin or try to minimize it because while I was yet a sinner, he demonstrated his love for me. And therefore, you see, my discovery of new dimensions and new qualities of my sin ought not to be frightening to me or shameful to me, but in fact, further occasion to yet taste and see and celebrate the sweetness of God's love for me. And for you. And for one another. You see, every fiber of my being, every instinct of my soul seeks to flee from the experience and the knowledge of this gap that I encounter. And our culture teaches us to avoid all such negativity. Get rid of such people and such relationships and such responsibilities and such circumstances that make you uncomfortable with those things that may expose that gap. After all, ain't nobody got time for that, as that great prophetess from YouTube told us. 
But brothers and sisters, hear me. The fact is that this awareness, this repeated and deepening awareness of my own sin in particular ways, in particular relationships, in particular responsibilities, this deepening and repeated awareness is the threshold through which we must pass in order to know to see, to taste, to savor, to celebrate the unknowable dimensions of the glory of God's love for us. The good news, listen to me. The good news, brothers and sisters, is not that we are not as sinful as we, want, as we think we are or as we might imagine ourselves to be. The good news is not that this gap does not exist or that it's smaller than it is. That's not the good news. The good news is that our Father delights and is glorified by entering into that gap and healing it by the power of His steadfast, patient, and enduring love. That's good news for me and for you and for Moses. And for these stubbornly rebellious Israelites. And that's exactly what Moses says. Notice Moses' response. Verse 8, Moses immediately, Moses quickly, Moses instinctively, Moses, Moses reflexively dropped to the earth. And he worshipped. And this is the content of his worship. Read it carefully. If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. The ESV reads for, the King James, read, King James reads, I think, for, although I think the NIV, if you have that in your Bible, I think that reads although. It is a stiff-necked people. I don't often do this, but I will do it here. The ESV has gotten it right. Because that is the point. What hope is there for a people such as the Israelites who prove themselves repeatedly to be stubbornly rebellious? It's not that they can figure it out. But it's who God reveals himself to be. That is their hope. And so Moses quite wisely says, go in the midst of us because we are such a people. If you are such a God, you must go in the midst of us because we are such a people. You must go with us for we are stubbornly rebellious, we will die without your presence in the midst of us. In other words, what Moses is realizing is that our greatest need is the patient presence of such a God, Emmanuel, with us. You see, that's our only hope. 
Brothers and sisters, do you understand that is our only hope? And do you understand that is our community's only hope? Is that such a God would dwell with such a people. I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with people in our community who say to me, well, I got to get myself together. I got to get my act together. I got to clean up my mess before I come to church. Brothers and sisters, you understand that's the point. We cannot clean up our mess. It depends upon the steadfast love of the Lord. Therefore, a recognition of who we are necessitates an increasing appreciation of God's glorious patience with us and his glorious patience with others. And an increasing participation in that patience with those who are around us, with our spouses and with our children, with our neighbors, with, our, with strangers and enemies and classmates and roommates and hallmates and teachers and direct reports and bosses and even brothers and sisters in the congregation. I have often told committees that your primary task as a committee, whether it's women's leadership team or mission team or whatever, your primary task is to learn to love one another around this table. It is not to put together events. Because that is growing in participation in the steadfast and patient love of the Lord. That's why the Lord throws us together on committees And frankly, that's why we find ourselves instinctively shrinking back from exercise and work on committees. Because to learn to love one another is hard work. This is exactly what Paul is celebrating in Romans chapter 8. You remember, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are called... who for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow, what a fantastic verse. But you have to understand that verse means something completely different unless you remember the answer that it's the answer to a question posed in Romans chapter 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to God our Father, through Jesus Christ the Lord. Romans 8.1 is only good news worthy of celebration for men such as Paul understood himself to be. Exodus 34, in 32, 33, and 34 is the historic experience of an entire people discovering what Paul discovered in Romans chapter 7 and 8. In fact, that's the, the, the pattern we discover in Psalm 73. Having observed the, his own foolishness and his own foolish response to the foolishness of the world around him, he turns in worship to God saying, Nevertheless, you are with me. Why does he say, Nevertheless, you are with me? Because a brute and a fool such as me should not have the hope of your presence with me. And yet that's who you are. The God 
of steadfast and abounding and patient love. Brothers and sisters, as we revel in the beauty and the glory and experience and the reality of God's own patient love, we in fact are made agents of that love. Just think for just a moment. Think of the neighborhoods that are represented in this congregation. I tried to get them all. I may not have them all, but just think. Flintstone, of course. We have CVE as a community and CV Middle School as a community. We have Eagle Landing. We have Stanford Place. We have Fox Den. We have Chattanooga Valley Road to the north, Chattanooga Valley Road to the south. We have St. Elmo. We have Rossville. We have James Street, all represented in this congregation. I know I'm missing others. What would happen if captive, being captivated to the patient and steadfast love of the Lord we were actually changed by it in those communities. Think about the workplaces to which the Lord has called, each, called us as a congregation. CVE, CV Middle School, Stone Creek, Fairland Elementary, CCS, Covenant College, Thrive, Battlefield Pharmacy, Erlanger, Cigna, MTW, UTC, Chalmers, Precept, Beaulieu, Chattanooga Police Department, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Covenant Transport, independent contractors abound, and at least 15 other workplaces that I can't name at the moment. Never mind those where we have students, including schools mentioned in Ridgeland High School. What would happen in our community in Northwest Georgia if we, rooted in the faith and rooted in the hope, came to be captive and changed by the steadfast, patient love of the Lord. What does it sound like? Brothers and sisters, this is who we are. This is our commission. This is Christ. The glory of the Lord in the flesh, and this is his mission. To see the peace of his transforming and patient love bringing healing and restoration to all people in all places in all circumstances. Truly, such a God must dwell in the midst of such a people that the world may see the sweetness of his abounding love. And so, Father, we come. And we pray that indeed you...